dynamic diversity according to the Bible. Dynamic diversity, written by Bruce Milne, as we've seen, is based on the thesis that the church is meant to be a center of reconciliation. This idea of reconciliation is predicated upon the vast division in society, division which is normally comprised of four major categories, class, age, race, and gender. According to Milne, a center of reconciliation is a place which seeks to reconcile the divides found in those categories. What follows is a brief summary of the book with some interjected themes and practical points that may be helpful for our consideration of dynamic diversity according to the Bible. Milne begins by noting that the way to bridge these points of division expressed in class, age, race, and gender is first and foremost a conceptual approach to the global nature of the church. He says, this book is written in the conviction that the divine mystery, the diversity and unity of the people of God in Christ need not be confined to the global stage, nor need it be deferred to the future age of glory. Rather, it can be experienced today in embryo in every local Christian congregation on the face of the earth. Milne stresses that the church must recognize the diverse nature of Jesus' new humanity on the global scale in order to bring about real change and conformity to this reality within their own congregations. He makes a strong case of why this is necessary by noting that this was indeed a reality among the early church across the Roman Empire and beyond. To be clear, Notions of diversity expressed in church history are often followed with calls to abandon orthodoxy for the sake of ecumenical renderings. A refreshing point in Milne's argument is that he opts not to abandon orthodoxy, but rather to follow it to the logical conclusion of unified diversity in the new humanity. He does this by savoring the truth of this among the people of God among the first two chapters followed by suggesting the embrace of orthodox theology as necessary for unity. He says, This new humanity, unity in diversity, together under Christ, this model receives a significant support from primary Christian beliefs. Theology buttresses the exegetical conclusions reached in the first two chapters. Milne then goes on to speak of the contours found in the Apostles' Creed, including the wonder of the Trinity, the atonement, and the church, to name a few. The next two chapters move to speak of the global approach of forming and structuring congregations, as well as a reaffirmation of the historical witnesses of global structures in the church. The argument is essentially, if the world around us is more globalized as ever, and the early church was able to comprise itself in such a way before the globalization of the 21st century, then the church today has no excuse not to be diversified in its structure. While this is his argument, Mill admits that this is an argument from cultural trajectories in history, not from a mandate in scripture. Chapter six of his book offers some transitional material along with some practical considerations for how the church can more readily be unified along denominational lines. Perhaps the strongest point in that short chapter is his point on the usefulness of denominations. He says, Denominations are commonly seen today as having only a limited shelf life. However, at the very least, they provide a sense of identity and belonging, a family of kindred congregations. In many ways, the content in this chapter serves primarily as a transition to the strongest point of the book, which is found in chapter 7. 
having laid the foundation in previous chapters that the church is the heartbeat and center of reconciliation in the world. The substance and form of worship becomes a real concern. Milne suggests several characteristics of worship that correlate to an inclusive church. All members of the congregation worshiping together, no one being disenfranchised in worship. Worship must please our neighbor as well as ourselves. Worship is gracious, inclusive, and celebrative. These characteristics of worship are all important in their own right. And since they are all grounded in scripture, it would be unwise to suggest that any of them are more dispensable than the others. In my opinion, this chapter is the strongest one in the book since worship is the heartbeat of the church in its structural form. As such, I've thought the most about how my church and any given church can implement these elements in our own ministry. The principle that all members of the congregation worshiping together should be embraced. It is hard to imagine that a segregated mindset of church can be avoided when this principle is neglected if not racially, then at least generationally. Milne states, Without intending to be inappropriately judgmental, it is frankly difficult to see how this biblical principle is upheld in congregations that divide into generational or other subsections for their corporate worship. Having experienced this kind of segregation previously, I'm glad to say my current church is a breath of fresh air in the commitment to encourage all age groups to gather together for corporate worship as much as possible. This certainly does not suggest that chapter 7 is the strongest chapter because it affirms what my current church practices. Instead, this chapter is helpful because it offers a challenge for future implementation that would be equally wise for anyone to consider. Any church needs to grow in the celebrative character of worship. As a church that emphasizes the simplicity of worship common among old-school Presbyterians, there's always a danger to oversimplify the form and leading of worship so as to exclude any clear expression of celebration. Milne offers a helpful reorientation for a church that does this, that worship done right does not need to exclude the importance of worship experienced rightly. This can be done without defaulting to experiential excess. The remaining chapters of the book build on the foundation of worship in chapter 7 in order to articulate what worship truly is beyond Sunday morning services. Yet this is not done in an effort to diminish the function of the worship service. Rather, the point Milne makes is to help the church to remember the nature of worship as discipleship and evangelism. The logic of this argument is quite sound, since worship understood rightly is that which continues to disciple those who are believers. And discipleship is the functioning arm of evangelism in the broad corporate sense and the individual sense of person to person. While the church might be tempted to approach these categories in a programmatic way, Milne's point is to see these things as a happy expression of the driving principle of the book, dynamic diversity in the new humanity, which fosters a unity and inclusivity to the consideration of discipleship and evangelism. The final chapter of Milne's book is not only a summary of his argument, but a revisiting of the point made in his preface about the global wave of the church and worship. The point is clear enough in this concluding chapter, a non-negotiable call to action. He says diversity is not optional. God's goal for his church within his all-embracing purpose to bring all things 
in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ, Ephesians 1.10, calls for congregations where that final unification is anticipated. The thesis in Milne's book that the church is the appropriate center of reconciliation is also the thematic underpinning throughout the practical points, including those related to denominations, worship style, and evangelism, which means it's a worldview issue. This reconciliation theme is based on the fact that the church is described as a new humanity, especially from the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This new creation is the only means to bring true unity into the human experience, since in the first humanity, the attitude towards one another is that of hatred and neglect. In this attitude, Cain is willing to kill his own brother and then argue to God about supposed consideration of his brother's well-being. Genesis 4.9 While this is true, Milne's encouraging point is that this new humanity is meant to reconcile humanity with new hearts that long to be one another's keeper with the same love which we all have experienced from Christ himself.